from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. It is a critical moment. If we do not act with urgency, we would then severely undermine the liberal order. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. The wind is back in Europe's sights. We have now a window of opportunity, but it will not stay open forever. Hello and welcome. My name is Christina Parenti. I'm the Clara O'Donnell Fellow at the Center for European Reform. And this week we are discussing Western policies towards Russia with Jan Bond, our foreign policy director. Hi, Jan. Hi. Exactly six years ago, Russia formally annexed Crimea almost a month after it began the armed intervention in Ukraine. Since then, Russia has been continuing its military aggression in Ukraine's Donbas and in Syria. It has also intervened in Libya, and on the top of this comes Russia's meddling in democratic processes of the Western states, extraterritorial killings of Kremlin's enemies, and spreading disinformation. And yet, some Western leaders are increasingly inclined to defrost relations with Russia's president, French President Emmanuel Macron being a notable example. How would you explain this, Jan? Well, there are two points here. The first is that most Western leaders have quite a short attention span. They like to see things moving and the relationship with Russia has not been moving for some years and they're impatient. They think that this is an unnatural state of affairs and so they would like to um, to reset, to improve things. The second thing is that they all have a high opinion of their diplomatic skills and their ability to tell a story that will persuade Vladimir Putin to change the way that he looks at the world. And that's a problem that I think goes right back to Tony Blair. Uh, in 2000, he went to visit Putin when Putin was still the acting president. And it goes on through George W. Bush and David Cameron and others, they they have all basically thought that they could do better than their predecessors, that they could find the right buttons to press with Putin that would unlock a better relationship with the West. And all of them ultimately have come away from Moscow and from their engagements with Putin disappointed. And exactly about those past experiences, you wrote in your recent insight about the lessons which Western leaders should have learned from the past engagements. But what are the principles that you would recommend them to follow while engaging in Russia again? The first thing is they really need to know their facts. Putin likes to claim to be an expert on history. Uh, His history tends to be quite distorted, but he uses it to, uh, to shape the way that Western leaders think about Russia. So, for example, The Soviet Union certainly played a decisive role in the victory in the Second World War, but it was the Soviet Union and actually Belarus and Ukraine suffered much more proportionate to their populations than Russia did. But Putin has taken, in a sense, all the credit for the Soviet victory and said it's a Russian victory. And so that, I think, is the kind of thing where Western leaders need to know what the facts are and to be prepared to to push back. Uh, More recent history 
the the way in which Putin tells the story of what happened in Ukraine, the idea of a, a Western-backed coup and neo-Nazis doesn't correspond at all to the reality either of what happened on on the ground uh, with the Euromaidan or subsequently when Russia began to intervene militarily in Ukraine. And in addition to knowing history, what would you recommend them to do in policy terms? Well, in policy terms, I think they need to be ready to be tough uh, in responding to unacceptable Russian behaviour, whether that's the annexation of Crimea or it's the um, bombing of hospitals in Syria, which has now been um, officially recognised by UN in investigators. You know, there are some things which are absolutely unacceptable and the West should be prepared to, to uh, say that and to um, act in response. And we're at a very interesting moment right now because the, um, the Dutch trial in absentia of those um, suspected of responsibility for shooting down the Malaysian airliner MH17 over Ukraine uh, with the loss of almost 300 lives, those people are on trial uh, and they are all Russian officials or Russian proxies who were in the area at the time. Um, you know, that's, that's very important. This is saying we're not going to pretend that we don't know who did it. Uh, we are going to lay out the evidence and show the world what's actually been done. So that's part of the policy response. But another part of the policy response is to keep talking. Uh, you know, in one way, politicians very often think, well, the first sanction that you undertake is you stop talking. And then later on, you start talking again, and that's seen as a reward. I think you should just keep talking, not regarded either as a punishment not to talk or as a reward to talk, um, but accept that there are some things that you need to talk about. There are some subjects that you, you have to talk about. In the case of Russia, we have a common interest, or perhaps separate but converging interests, in not let, letting an arms race get out of hand. Um, we have issues to talk about in the field of non-proliferation, for example. Um, and it's really important to know where the other side's red lines are. You know, it's important for NATO to know what Russia regards as threatening. It's important for Russia to know what NATO regards as threatening. It doesn't mean you have to make concessions or reach an agreement. But the, the less you talk, the more risk there is of unintended escalation and um, dangerous misinterpretation of what the other side is doing. So I, you know, I think talking is, is good, but you have to be realistic about how much it can achieve. And then I think there are some areas where actually you can cooperate. Um, we have the coronavirus issue uh, where there are public health issues to be addressed on both sides. Exchanges of information, exchanges of best practice, of experience of dealing with vulnerable populations and so on. These are all things where it would be useful for the two sides to talk. It's not political, it, it doesn't raise the same sensitivities, but it's worth challenging the idea 
on Putin's side that Russia is a besieged fortress surrounded by enemies and by saying actually we will cooperate in areas where there is a shared interest and we can make progress together but don't expect us to turn a blind eye to everything that the Russian authorities are doing however awful. I have just mentioned that there are two sides, the West and Russia, when it comes to dealing with each other. But we also we are also facing the landscape where West is getting extremely patchy in terms of different players and different interests they have. So even on the European side, we have member states with their own distinct initiatives. We have the new EU leadership with increasingly geopolitical ambitions. And on the other side of the Atlantic, we have President Trump, who seems to exert quite a transactional approach. So where do we find a transatlantic or let's say Western unity when it comes to dealing with Russia? And in particular, I'd like to ask you about the sanctions. How do you think the West can preserve its streamlined pressure uh, in applying sanctions to Russia? So maintaining Western unity is never easy. It wasn't easy even in the Cold War when the Soviet threat was much clearer and more obvious. But I think most Western leaders would recognise, and if they don't, they need to be reminded, that their interests converge with each other much more than with any interests that they might have with President Putin and his government. Uh, in terms of um, initiatives by individual European leaders, it's a good thing that the um, the French president has now sent out a, his envoy for dealing with Russia, uh, Pierre Vimont, the former very senior French diplomat who happens to be on the advisory board of the CER. He sent him out to, um, to make the case around Europe for um, Macron's ideas on re-engaging with Russia. But frankly, he should have done that before he launched his ideas in public. And he should probably have tried to get buy-in within a European context. Now, I, I think it's a good thing that the um, EU High Representative for Foreign and Security Policy, Josip Borrell, uh, is now planning to go to Moscow. I think that falls into the category of talking about things we need to talk about. Uh, but I hope that he will be going with some prior discussion among the EU member states with a script that everybody feels they have a, a stake in, as it were. Um, that, that sort of unity is very important. Dealing with President Trump and his attitudes to Russia is much more problematic, it seems to me. Uh, Trump and Putin, in some respects, see the world in similar ways. They think in very bilateral terms. They think in terms of power politics rather than institutions and international rules. Uh, but I would hope, nonetheless, that if nothing else, through the mechanisms of NATO, the Europeans and the North Americans can talk about how best they deal with the challenges that are posed by Russia. After all, uh, towards the end of last year, NATO managed to hold some in-depth discussions on China, uh, which I think was an interesting innovation. But I think it's equally important that they try to analyse what's going on in Russia and to think about the implications of that for the West and to craft policies that they can all rally behind.
so let's look on the russia side in this equation. what is actually going on there from the perspective of political developments and economic updates? mr yeah ah it's a very interesting time in russia at the moment in january in his annual sort of state of the nation address to the to the parliament to the federal assembly putin indicated that he would be putting forward constitutional amendments and what those seemed to be doing was creating a basis for him to move out of the seat of president and to take on a kind of elder statesman role maybe as the 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 chair of something called the state council which had previously been a rather powerless body but which in the new constitutional arrangements would have much more power putin surprised a lot of people and me included when on the 10th of march um, he seems to have engineered for one of his supporters in the lower house of parliament to propose a constitutional amendment that would allow him to stay in office potentially for another uh, 16 years so his current term is due to end in 2024 with this new constitutional amendment he could have another two terms on top of that so that would take us through to 2036 at which point putin would be 84 seems a little old for a president to me now the russian population has to vote on these constitutional amendments but they will be tied together in a package with things like uh, pension higher pensions and um, higher minimum wages and other sort of attractive social benefits and i think you know putin is pretty much guaranteed to get those amendments passed so one thing for western leaders now to grapple with is that they probably are going to have to deal with putin for the next 16 years i mean unless he is unseated uh, resigns or dies in office um you know if he remains healthy and uh, if he wishes to go on he's given himself the opportunity to go on for an extremely long period of time so whatever craft whatever western politicians are crafting by way of, of policies they have to take account of the fact that they will need to last for a very long time now the thing that i think in some ways threatens putin's position is the state of the economy it's been quite stagnant for a while uh, a deep decline in growth rates began even before western sanctions were applied in 2014-2015 and that has a lot to do with the fact that the russian economy remains very heavily dependent on revenues from oil and gas and the price of those had been on the slide for some time and it reflects also underinvestment in innovation in science and technology in russia which is sort of handicapping the country's chances of moving to a more balanced economy getting away from the oil and gas sector now the new factor is that with the impact of the coronavirus on the global economy and with a price war breaking out in the oil in the global oil market the price of oil has fallen very steeply we don't know how long that might go on for but 
Russia can cope with low prices for a while, but it can't cope indefinitely, and it does make it much harder for Putin to spend money on infrastructure, which Russia needs to invest in education, in higher education, research and development, uh, and generally to put Russia on a sustainable long-term course, bearing in mind that the world is trying to transit away from a carbon-based economy. So Russia's big asset of having a lot of oil and gas may turn out in the future not to be as valuable as it has been in the past. And that, again, I think is something that Western politicians also need to, to think about when they're crafting their energy policies is do you want to be dependent as dependent for example as Europe is at the moment on Russian oil and gas supplies or do you want to shift away to alternative fuels or even if you rely on hydrocarbons for a few more years do you want to look for alternative sources? So given this fragile state of Russia's economy, do you think it will affect how Putin approaches the Western leaders and actually whether it will result into some change of his foreign policies? There are two ways that this could go. I mean, one is that um, Putin might look, look for a more cooperative relationship with the, the West uh, because that could enable him to reduce some of Russia's enormous spending on defense and security and uh, divert more investment into uh, developing you know new sectors of the economy so that's you know that's the kind of optimistic scenario the pessimistic scenario is that uh, as in 2013 2014 he tries to di divert attention in russia away from domestic economic problems Uh, by um, organizing a foreign adventure or building up an enemy image somewhere that you know Russia needs to go and be brave and accept hardships as their forefathers accepted hardships um, and generally to try to get people either not to think about the fact that their standards of living are dropping or to view it as something rather heroic to tolerate a falling, falling living standards. Um, I don't know which way Putin will jump, um, but I, his narrative at the moment seems to me to point perhaps a little more in the second direction, in the direction of a more aggressive approach um, to, to his neighbors and to the West, rather than saying, well, you know, we, we all face these common problems and we had better go and try and find a way to get on together and, and sort them out. But Putin can surprise us sometimes. So I'd like to end on the optimistic note that although I think things may get worse, it's possible um, that Putin will decide that the best way to protect Russia's interests at the moment is by improving the relationship with the West. Thank you so much, Ian. So let's watch what the upcoming months bring to us and thank everybody who listened. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.